0: What you should know about politics, development and health in India today with Patra Chatterjee. Thank you for joining me for my Social Edge conversation. This is your in-depth magazine on our health, wealth and sustainable future. I hope you're interested in medicine, uh, public health, or nutrition, or indeed in the politics and economics of sustainable development. My aim is to give you the evidence, great discussion, and the tools you need for your own success. So, today we've got India. We're talking about its politics, health, nutrition, caste, aspiration cultural diversity, and the status of women. And I've had a great conversation with international journalist and author Patra Lecker-Chatterjee for episode five of our podcast series. Okay, let's start with three things that are happening in global health this week. The World Health Assembly, the Ebola outbreak in uh, DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, and a scary and slightly unreported, uh, Nipah virus outbreak in India. Starting with the World Health Assembly, this is the big come together of all health ministers around the world, 194 countries and many observers for a big thrash in, uh, Geneva. Sadly not there this year, uh, but I'm, I'm following things from a distance. The first thing, of course, is that they have approved a new five-year strategic plan that's been developed over the last six to nine months by Tedros and his team, and it basically has three targets to ensure that by 2023, which is less than five years away, one billion more people benefit from universal health coverage, one billion more people from uh, protection from health emergencies, and one billion more people enjoy better health and well-being and so they estimate this triple billion target could save 29 million lives and Tedros told the assembly that the new strategic plan was ambitious because quotes it must be. So this is good it's ambitious I like that the big issues of course are how we might measure those targets and then of course uh, how one could estimate the contribution of uh who to it or even the attribution of what who does to it they have set up an independent panel of experts to look at this but i'm sure a role for the global health community is to keep an eye on what uh they're doing uh progress data and also to make sure that this is not just simply um Uh, what's happening as part of a secular trend that would happen anyway. So I'm sure that we'll come back to it in these podcasts. I'm sure all of you will be watching this with interest. Other news, there are a lot of stuff from East Asia, from China and neighbouring states about actually eliminating malaria from that region of the world, which is encouraging. The Vice Minister of China's National Health Commission, Q. Li, uh actually stated that he thought this could be done uh in the near future um but there is some concern from the assistant director general ren mingui there um that if we don't think turn things around now uh uh, particularly about malaria in africa then we're not going to achieve targets and things might go into reverse so mixed pattern on malaria um and uh, of course, universal health coverage is a big component of Ted Rossi's campaign, and there's been lots of site meetings and stuff all about that we'll We'll have another session about that now, Ebola is also on the agenda, and <clears throat> there's a big worry here actually the next two or three weeks are going to be critical because this has broken out. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and normally, if it's in rural areas, it's a bit easier to keep tight control over things. But there have been uh two or maybe three cases now in Wangata, which is a suburb of Umbandaka, which is a city of one point two million people on the Congo river um there are now well over fifty cases uh reported as probable or suspected and i think the death toll is approaching 30 now so the big worry is that if it takes root in urban areas or spreads out down the congo river which is a a big area for traffic it could spread into other neighboring countries uh which include angola burundi rwanda south sudan tanzania zambia and uganda so this is a big issue, and we do have a vaccine in the armamentarium now, Uh, but this is a vaccine that really works to limit the spread when you find a case, and that's a very useful thing to have. Um Murray Porchini, the previous Assistant Director General, was involved in the coordination of Uh, that whole process of development of a vaccine in record time, which was a real feather in the cap of WHO working with many partners. But, and it's a big but, uh, in a blog I put out last week, I'm emphasising the importance of social uh, mobilisation, because without that, as we've learnt many times before, proper involvement of communities, uh, you're not going to identify the cases rapidly enough or put into practice the kind of quarantine measures and safe burial that you need to get this epidemic under control and uh my worry is if it spreads it's not just bad for DRC and all the people affected it's bad for WHO because i'm sure then people will start f- uh, making criticism against it um but uh is uh i think peter salama the who emergencies chief has said we're on the epidemiological knife's edge of this response. So we need to watch that uh, very carefully. Um, just to say one other thing about Nipah virus. So Nipah virus is a rare and deadly one that's uh, now emerged in southern India. There have been previous relatively small outbreaks in Bangladesh and that part of the world. Um the really the the, the the scary thing about this is that, depending upon the strain, it can have really high mortality rates. Uh, I mean, uh, worse than Ebola. So it varies a little bit between thirty and seventy percent. Um, basically, you get a fever, vomiting, then you get mental confusion and encephalitis, and that's what kills you. And it's spread by fruit bats that live throughout Asia. They carry the virus. And in the Bangladesh outbreak, they uh, caught it by drinking raw date palm sap that the virus carrying bats had also sipped and therefore contaminated. And the bats can also transmit this to pigs and other livestock, which in turn can pass it on to humans. And if a human gets it, they can spread it through human-to-human contact. And in the latest outbreak, um, one of the victims was a 30-year-old nurse who'd been treating uh, the patients in um, Kerala. So basically, the health officials in India are moving fast to test everything, local bats, livestock, food samples. Also, they worried about mangoes because one family of four who had 4 sorry, one family who lost four members to the Nipah virus um had been eating mangoes and it was uh, worried that again this was uh mangoes that have been bitten by by these infected bats now it's it's um the virus uh targets nerve cells and also the inner lining of blood cells uh by latching on to particular proteins and uh it can also target the lungs and uh it's a very very nasty disease now the only good news about it or the, to stop us worrying that this is going to be a global outbreak is that the reproductive rate of the infection is relatively very small so if you take um measles which is incredibly infectious for every case you get 10 uh transmissions to other Cases. So the thing uh, to other people, so the epidemic can spread very quickly. With Ebola, it, that figure is between one and three get infected by an infected person. In the case of Nipah, it's less than one. So, uh, more often than not, a person that gets it does not pass it on to, to others. But nonetheless, it, this just reminds us that we are constantly facing all kinds of novel attack by viruses through various routes. And we have to be prepared. And I'm pleased to see that the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations CEPI, which was only set up last year, has already granted $25 million uh, to uh, a couple of biotech companies to get further work going on a vaccine. Yeah. Okay well for my interview this week I'm delighted to welcome uh, Patra Lekha Chatterjee she's a Delhi based journalist of a, uh, an author photographer and columnist she's written in uh, publications all over the world in uh, major newspapers in medical journals she has a particular interest in global health but she lives in India lives in Delhi and is very close to the action and I was very keen uh, to get an update on what is probably the most important country uh, for all of us in, in health and development. So I hope you enjoy it. And we covered a lot of of, of ground. And uh, uh, Patra Dekha is always entertaining. Of course. Cool. So, so Patra, why, why are politics so tense in India right now?
1: Ah, uh, you know, I live in Delhi, the capital city where we're always, I mean, it's an intensely political city, like a lot of capital cities. And, um, we're also heading towards a general election, um, in a year or maybe less than a year. And right now we just finished one provincial elections you know, in the state of Karnataka, which is in South India. And a lot of people outside might know it for its state capital, Bengaluru, which is like supposed to be Indian Silicon Valley. And, um, we are in the middle of a very interesting situation where, uh, you know, one part, which is the Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, which is at the helm, um, you know, at the center, has got the maximum number of seats, but not the absolute majority. And the opposition Congress, um, and another party called Janata Dal Secular together have, you know, more seats. And uh, now the governor will decide. And now comes this very interesting Indian expression called horse trading, which can mean actually anything, I just finished doing a column, you know, on this, Um, it's strictly not very ethical ways of essentially making sure that um, uh, MLAs, that's legislators from the other side, defect to your side. Um, uh, One uh, one BJP spokesperson uh, described it as freedom of movement (laughs) yesterday on a television discussion, Generally, we are in a very charged. um, We have been for quite some time now. Everything is. Has the
0: honeymoon wore off or worn off for uh, for Prime Minister Modi? Do the election results suggest a swing away from the BJP? And and which, if so, which other parties are benefiting?
1: Um, you know. India is famously considered, you know, a country of paradoxes and everything is said equal and the opposite is also true. So, if really, that question, the answer is really, you know, it depends and, you know, it depends on who you ask. Um, they've done actually quite well in the provincial elections. They have lost a few. But, you um, there is, there is a, it, it's, I mean, sometimes people do ask that, you know, what, what are people so happy about? The economy is not doing very well. And it's one of those, you know, eternal, perennial topics of debate. Uh, Mr. Modi himself, personally, does remain extremely popular. The the opposition Congress, which was kind of in the doldrums, is picking up. But it's a question of, you know, what we, what an Indian uh, sort of, uh, you know, political to we call Tina Factor? You know, is there an alternative? Uh, so I think I think also simultaneously, as I said, there's also the narrative of consolidating the Hindu.
0: Traditionally in India, the, the winners of big elections have to get a majority of the rural poor. And certainly they got behind Modi in the last election. Do you think they're still happy with progress? And in particular what 's always surprised me is why health hasn 't been a much bigger issue in India, and do you think or are you impressed by uh, the Modi proposals for primary health care
1: Well you know why health hasn't been a big issue I mean I myself would say right on health i've always i've always wondered because it's not just why health hasn't been the big a big issue because health deserves to be but also because in the Indian context um, you know the vast majority most of us pay for medical care out of our pocket right yeah. so actually I mean I've done a couple of books and thanks for you know, UNICEF on maternal deaths and newborn debts and I was actually traveling around the country astounded you know on whether you live or die, and I'm talking about a baby or a, or a mother, really depends on who you are and geographically where you are. I mean, simple things like, you know, distance to the, the primary health care, to what extent you know it's equipped, the access to doctors, that kind of thing. And also, cost of medicines, you know, most of the the, the medical cost is actually, uh, you know, medicines and diagnostics and this kind of thing. And so, though notionally we have, you know, the, the public hospitals are free, but they're overcrowded, they're overstretched, so health actually should be but it hasn't been now in recent time in, in some of the southern states it has been in local elections regional elections they have surfaced but not quite as the sort of top you know top item the way you would say it's in uk or even in the united states you know obamacare and the nhs i mean i've been following some of the debates not quite in that league but Recently, the Modi government has tried, has put health on the high table with its, you know, what they call a the big flagship program called Ayushman Bharat. It's kind of wellness, and it's got two components. One is, uh, it's actually tertiary care, and, and it's, it's a lot of money they're giving, not to everybody, but to, to the most underprivileged for, you know, hospital and surgery. That's one part of it. The- the other part is relates to what you just you know asked about primary health care and it's about 150 uh, 150000 what they call health and wellness centers which are likely to be rolled out in the next few years and um, which, which would sort of seek to provide comprehensive primary care now the the in terms of the official, if you talk about the official rhetoric or the official speeches, this is right on top. And Mr. Modi himself, um, you know, has, has spoken about it. It was mentioned in the budget. Um, one of one such center, uh, health and wellness center, has actually been inaugurated in, in the central Indian state of Chaktaskar. Um, but and no one, no one uh, theoretically, actually, I mean, you can't possibly... Uh, uh, you know, say that primary health care is not important. It is the most important thing in India, and if you want to do any kind of health reforms, that's where you need to start. And, and if the government wants to do it, that's fantastic. But then... Then comes the ifs and the buts, and what is not very clear because we only have the example of one centre and and a lot of you know policy documents on how exactly it's going to be rolled out. Um, you know, where is the money going to come from? They said the government says there's enough money, but what has been actually? sanctioned in the budget is not enough and um, then they said it'll the corporate social responsibility you know the private sector can step in and help out uh, that that becomes quite a hot potato in India because again there's a polarizing debate on um, whether private sector should step into healthcare and to what extent the private sector of course is omnipresent including in primary healthcare. you know like quacks and private doctors and yeah. that kind of thing but I see one big key issue which is not really being addressed um I think, in the depth that it should, is the whole human resource angle, because, you know, uh, this is the biggest problem, I mean, you know, where are the doctors going to come from? Where are the nurses, the multi, you know, the a and the auxiliary, um, you know, nurse and midwife, the health workers come from? You just don't have the specialists come from. I mean, I've visited uh, many, many primary health centers, um, you know, in rural India, Including in remote areas, I've also written about it for Lancet and things. And if you go, I mean, of course, it's again India is very patchy. If you go to the south, for instance, southern India states like Kerala or Tamil Nadu, uh, which have traditionally focused on, you know, social issues, things are very different. But in the north, up north, where the the sort of the, the problems are like Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, I mean. A typical primary health center is in a terrible, you know, it's a sorry state. I mean, recently I went to one and, you know, the the doors will be locked, it'll be all full of cobwebs, you know, maybe the doctor comes only once a day, you'll find dogs roaming around, it's not been cleaned, you know, this kind of thing. Now, there are reasons why doctors don't want to go to these areas, because they said, you know, they also got family, they also have to live, they can't be just in the middle of, you know, nowhere without any facility, then there are not enough doctors. And then the ones who are there want to be in the uh, cities, in the big city, many emigrate.
0: If you, you you've mentioned, I mean, India is three times the size of Europe. So to consider it just as a homogeneous country, of course, is a huge mistake. And you've said in the south, Tamil Nadu, Kerala and other states there, actually, they've got a pretty functioning primary care system within the same resource package, more or less, of the northern states. But the northern states like Bihar to Pradesh haven't done that. So it raises the question, is this about resources or is it more about social and political culture?
1: Well, both, because uh, I forgot to mention, but it's a key issue, health is actually a state subject, by which I mean... Um, State meaning you know if have a federal system so the central list and the state list so health is mostly in the state it, 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 uh, it's a domain of the provincial or state government as we call it there are also central schemes like we had the polio you know that's a that's a central scheme so but the social but you're absolutely right on the on the issue of social cultural um, I mean all these states that I mentioned in the south. Tamil Nadu, Kerala, it's not a coincidence, but their literacy levels, including female literacy levels, are way higher. Right. They spend a lot more on health and education. I mean, i you know... I've been to schools and primary health centers in the south where the the people, the beneficiaries, are far more demanding. It's a sort of bipartisan issue, so no matter which government comes, there's a basic minimum, which is expected. I mean, I've been to primary health centers in Tamil Nadu, for instance, and I remember uh, going there, and, you know, it it looked like sweetly clean, and it had, you know, nice tile floors. And I saw a a woman who looked like like me, you know, like a middle-class woman, and she had come... You know, to, to deliver a child. And I said, um, you know, you would come to a government primary health center. Why wouldn't you go to a, a, a private uh, nursing home or a hospital? And she said, why would I if it's just as good? You know, why should I want to waste my money? So it's a, it's a question of, I think, what we call, um, you know, in India, what has happened and everything is to track, right? Um, I mean, <laughs> It's sort of like the caste system, you could say. Uh, so the, the rich, the, the people who have the ability, who can make a noise, uh, for various reasons, they prefer to uh, patronize the private system, you know, the private school, the private uh, health care system. And these are the ones who actually get the cloud. So in, in most parts of the country, the people who actually go to the, say, a public hospital or a public um, Health centre are really the people who don't have the the ability. I mean, yes, they have the numbers, but yet they're not so vocal. They're not so visible. So I think I think this is what it is, you know. And as far as the government is concerned, you know, they everything is taken care of. So I mean, that's the irony that the government. I mean, their, their health bills are taken. The government bureaucrats. Their health bills are taken care of. You know so they don't have to worry like i ah, you know I'm, I'm as i'm growing older uh you know i worry a lot about um you know, what, what What will happen if I fall seriously sick? I'll have to go to a private health. And yeah. then just the diagnostics, you know, and private sector is also not very regulated, which is the other worry. Yeah. So I think I think it's both, you know, it's the resources, of course, but also the sociocultural milieu overall over a period, over a long period.
0: Some of the figures are a bit scary. That I think 90% of all maternal and newborn deaths in India occur within the tribal, scheduled, other backward caste groups. And can I take it that caste is less of a factor in the southern states than in the northern states, would you say? Let's
1: um, see, the tribal is separate from caste. So what we call caste is yeah. scheduled caste, you know, the Dalits. Um yeah. Scheduled tribes, I mean, those are two scheduled categories in the sense of both, you could say is marginal. Cost is not a factor, but again, I mean, I'm, I'm completely against the caste system. But um, the two ways of looking at it, um, whether you accept caste as an organizing principle of society, um, having said that, does everybody still get the basics? So, again, the South is, you know, uh, in each state, I think I think the marginalized will always be worse off. And, you know, uh, uh, when you talk about tribals who are not actually part of the caste system, but they're still marginalized. I mean, I mean, there are reasons, you know, mostly say they live in the forested areas. Now, there is a simple question of access. You know, this is just the access. I mean, the, 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 there are no doctors there. There's no... Uh, there's, I mean when I did this book like for UNICEF, you know on maternal deaths, the three delays, you know the famous three delays yeah. and you find um, you know there is no let's say a tarred road. So that's why I said, you know, where, you know, it really brought home to me this, this very, very stark truth that where a child lives, and then the, the malnutrition, uh, uh, you know, the, the poverty. So there's a lot of clustering of factors. a lack of uh, education, sure. you know, that most of the, the, the IMR, for instance, the infant mortality rate has improved, but we continue to lead the world as far as I know. I haven't actually looked at it in very recent days, but last time I looked at it, India still had the largest number of newborn deaths, you know, and and that there's a reason for that because this, you know, the lack of awareness, the sort of lack of emergency preparedness, uh, then the, the health centers without having these, you know, the sort of uh, the, the, the gynecologists and the special doctors who can deal with these emergencies. And and people above, I mean, if you look at the, the caste system as a kind of a food chain, The people who are above that will have more resources, more uh, contacts, more everything. So even if they are, I mean, for argument's sake, in a a geographically, let's say, a difficult area, they're in a position to immediately go to some place, some other place where they can access, they have the money, they have the resources, etc. Whereas the others, the marginalized community, why I think you see such terrible health statistics over there, and I think the newborn deaths and the... The maternal debts are just, you know, proxies of how well, you know, society and the the bottom half of society is doing. It's because for them, everything is a challenge, you know. And then most, and also remember, the vast majority of Indians don't actually even have formal sector jobs. They're informal jobs. So when you plan, I mean, one of the things that struck me, why don't people plan? Well, people plan meaning, you know, the husband or the father has to take a day off or maybe several days off. And then that would mean several days of wages gone. So all these factors, you know, clustering together, then the low position of women, you know, that also kicks in. So I think think many, many factors, there's no one reason, but when you're at the bottom, many of these come together and what you get actually is the stark statistics.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the government... Several years ago did introduce the, the JSY program, you know, the giving a cash transfer yeah. to women to encourage yeah. them to go to hospitals to have delivery of, I think it's 1500 rupees. So that's a, uh, that's about, oh uh, $25 or something like that. It's, um, it's not an insignificant amount to a rural household. Like. Yeah. And they do go. uh, You know, you've gone up from I think, uh, you know, twenty years ago, thirty five percent going to hospital up to nearly ninety percent, or certainly above eighty percent. But actually, mortality rates have not come down as quickly as you expect, and presumably that's because of a lot of quality of care issues. So my question is, do you think the medical profession in India must share some of the blame here? Um, There have been accusations of corruption around the training process, about the ratification of medical schools and the like. Uh, Do you think that the medical profession is giving you the services that you deserve?
1: Um, You know, yes and no. See the Dhananee Suraksha Yojana is a partial success, and I've seen it. You know that's true. And there was a lot of training, you know, which went into it. And myself documented for UNICEF a program called IMNCI. You know, where where I travelled all over, and you see what newborn care. You know, when if you put in all the resources and the training, what it could do, and not just the medical doctors, but even you know the anganwadi worker and the nurses. I mean, I've seen it. You know, in places like Andaman and Nicobar Islands, where the tsunami hit and the doctors that were not there, what. Simple, you know, the, the sort of anganwadi workers and and you know they saved lives, dozens and dozens and dozens of lives. So that's there. But yes, um, I think there's a lot. There is an issue about medical training. Yes, corruption is a big issue because the the public. Then you get into the 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 medical colleges, the public. Medical colleges, which are really cheap and very subsidized, and they produce absolutely world class people, like you might have heard of All India Institute of Medical Sciences. Sure, and sure. Uh, that's absolutely outstanding, you know, uh, even though they're really overstretched. But it's very, very difficult. I mean, you would pay an arm and a leg if you wanted that kind of education in a private place in, in a first world country. Yeah. But but it's extremely competitive, a very small percentage, a minuscule percentage getting. So that leaves the field open for these private medical colleges, which are really of, you know, very, very variable. And there's been lots of corruption issues. And it's essentially, you know, you pay, you pay to get a seat. And sometimes they don't even have proper trainings, proper, uh, you know, proper teachers, proper facilities. And the, the argument goes that when people pay a lot of money to, to get a seat over there, then they need to recoup. And they, you know, their, their priority is not, they, they would open a fancy private, like what they call, you know, literally, hotels, you know, five-star hotel, hospital kind of thing. They are really unlikely. These doctors are unlikely to want to go and, you know, serve in a private, uh, sorry, in a, in a rural primary health you know, care and that kind of thing. That's one part. The other, you know, when I was uh, documenting this i and I actually sat in on some of these training uh, programs, even, even though I'm, you know, I'm not a medical doc- I mean I don't have any medical qualifications. I'm just a health journalist. But one of the things I was astounded by is the lack of, sort of exposure, which these doctors or these people who are training to be doctors have in community, kind of community medicine or in the community. I mean, we are a very stratified society. So assuming that most of these doctors are coming from kind of middle class backgrounds, you know, they even in that everyday, um, you know, they don't really, they don't really know, know how poor people live or they've never been, you know, to a village or they've never been inside the slum. They probably have had hardly any conversations. They had no, um, I mean, one doctor told me that he didn't know how to hold a newborn baby. He always made the nurse do it. (laughs) He had the MBS degree and things. But some of these, you know, the context. And many times patients come to the doctor and the doctor can't even imagine the kind of conditions, you know, under which. So I I personally think that there should be, and recently I attended a, a World Rural Health Conference. I was actually moderating a panel. And I was quite, pleasantly surprised to hear what South Africa and some other countries were doing, you know, making it a a part of the course is in a a village kind of a context, so you have a, a, you know, a a kind of compulsory exposure. Uh, In India, this is a big, big topic, big, you know, it's a very uh, sort of prickly topic because no one wants to go to the villages, but you know, I mean, I think, I think it's sort of... I mean, the
0: same people will go to Iraq or somewhere in Africa, you know, and do a UN job, but they yeah, won't. Yeah, right. Patrick, I, can I just move on yeah. to an, another big issue, which is environmental pollution? And, of course, this has massive impacts on health. I mean, maybe half of all death and illness in, in India is related to uh, air pollution or water pollution. Um, are you... I mean... You face enormous challenges with such a big population. Are you confident about progress? Do you think it's being taken seriously when I think 13 out of the 14 most polluted cities in the world are now in India with air pollution?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm living in a city which is among the, the among the most polluted yeah. in, in the world, Delhi. I mean, if you... Visit a North Indian city, you know, one of them. It's it's like you see a lot of young women and men, you know, with kind of scarves draped around. Uh, um, and in one small, small town I went to, I thought the entire town was, you know, wearing hijabs, but it was not. They were not wearing hijabs. Yeah, they were just, must. you know, they have this. To scarf the girls, you know, around it, and the children. It's very, very sad to see. I mean, I've, I've spoken to, um, you know, young parents and their their children. You know, they have asthma. That's. I mean, if you talk to any paediatricians, private or public, they'll tell you how this is going up. I mean, there's there's any number of you know official statistics and um, you know studies done by various international bodies. Now, Indian government, I think, various agencies do acknowledge the problem, though each time. An international study which sort of makes us look very bad. There's a lot of uh, there's an instant re- reaction is to kind of you know, you know, be more concerned about um, and I've always been a bit intrigued by this, you know, the, the, and it's not just the Indian government but also society at large, particularly the Indian middle class, um, much more prickliness towards how India appears, you know, the yeah. image, yeah, than what is so. You know whether it was the superbug or whether it was the air pollution. It's how it makes us look. Yeah. Um, and, and to me, I mean, as a health writer, as a development writer, that's really the secondary issue. Of course, that is important. I don't want. You know, I, I obviously don't feel good if somebody is saying something uh, negative about my country. But to me, the, the actual issue, you know, the fact that people are suffering and especially small children, is, I think, a greater issue than the image part of it. Um, on progress, I think we have. Again, there are a lot of steps being taken, in fits and starts. There are lots of policy recommendations, but I think you know there is a fundamental issue, and I really don't have an answer to this. This 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 aspirational India, emerging power, economic power, and 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 you know, in absolute terms, though we have millions and millions of people and uh, living in abysmal conditions, it is also true that in the last many years, uh, millions and millions of people have also you know come up from the absolute yeah. you know poverty. And this is what you call the, 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 the new middle class or people who are just above the bread line. They're very aspirational. and This is one of the things... Um You know, I I actually live in public housing, and um, we moved in here in 1989. And I remember uh, we were given something called a scooter garage. You know, and now there's hardly anybody with scooters over here. People have two, three cars. It's not just cars; they must have, you know, SUVs. So this 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 sheer uh, so no matter what you do, the sheer numbers of people, um, you know, that and then and the number of people who have aspirations and they want cars, and then of course. It's not just about aspirations. In a city like Delhi, the public transport is not good. So there's yeah. also the, the real problem of if you don't have a vehicle of some sort. Oh, it's a city of massive distances. I mean, you routinely commute 20, 30, 40 kilometers a day. How yeah. exactly are you going to do it? You can't walk right now. And then there's this issue of safety. So there are lots of issues. I think I think the way I see it, you know, there is a much greater political awareness now and, and um, Officially, uh, this is on the table, and and you know, right from the prime minister to many other ministers, the health minister does talk about it. I think there have been many policy recommendations, um, you know, on, on how to control the uh, the crop burning. That's the other other issue and right. construction that's the other thing, you know. there's perennially, you know, people are renovating their houses. New buildings are coming up. This is this is part of an emerging economy, unlike, say, the most settled, you know, European country or whatever, where you know you just sort of, uh, you know, this is people are constant, permanent state of mobility in every way. Right. But I think the way we will go is, you know, maybe two. Uh, you know, two steps forward and one step backward, one step forward and two steps backward. Yes, I think we may, parts of India will probably improve and parts will go back. I mean, I, I can't tell give you a definitive picture because there are too many variables over here. No. But at the moment where I live, things are not good, you know, and I mean, air pollution is a very serious issue. Yeah. Well,
0: look, I, we've talked a lot about problems and difficulties, but, you know, i been coming to India for 35 years, and I absolutely love India because it's an incredible uh, culture. It has a fantastic history. It's got, I think, the best food in the world. It, certainly not just not just for the cuisine, but also it's low carbon. It's incredibly healthy. Um, it's you know, India has got so much. To offer the world. And the other thing I should say is, as a Brit, I am more than aware of the damage that colonialism did to your country in terms of its wealth. We stripped it, uh, we, you know, for 200 years. If you go back to the 18th century, um, you had, I think, uh, 20% of world GDP. By the time we left, it was down to 2%. And since independence you have started your economic rise and all of that is good so uh mayor cooper from britain but my question is in in the race and you've touched on this towards economic progress and if you like the the 21st century belonging to india which it could do and of course your greatest export is your people i've lost count of the number of major companies, you know, whether it's Microsoft or Google or all of these big companies now have Indian chief executives because you're brilliant at managing things. But the question is, how can we preserve the good of India? the You know, the fantastic diet, protect it from junk food. How do we learn from the great friendliness and social nature of India and export that and at the same time stop some of the the downsides of modernity? Big question.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, challenging questions. Well, I mean, to me as an Indian, you know, I've actually, like, travelled to about 60, 70 countries and lived in two, you know, UK and France. And I choose to remain in India, though I love travelling. And to me, the greatest attraction of India, where I really... Find no other country which quite matches up is its diversity, yeah. and you mentioned and that is not just in the cuisine, but in everything. So when you know when people talk about Indian food, you know, and I know people sort of the, the, the cliches, chicken tikka masala, etc. But there is nothing called Indian food. You know, there's yeah. regional food and <laughs> sub-regional food, and you know district food, and then there's vegetarian and non-vegetarian. And as I said, you know, we have a lot of politics, and that's all. The food. So we have this, um, you know, the the meat versus vegetarian, though it's a slightly different angle over here. But, you know, we have all those debates going on. So I think diversity um, and resilience are two of India's biggest strengths. And at a time when the world is, you know, this whole polarization and everything that I've been talking about, uh, you know, is wrestling with some of these questions, I think it's actually India. Uh, the essence of India, you know, India has a lot to offer in terms of, I, I see this as actually India's soft power, you know, the diversity. Yes. You know, yeah. If it somehow showcase it. And when you talk about the diet, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, I, I, I for instance, uh, now there are people who are, Doing this. I mean, for instance, there's a very good NGO nonprofit in Delhi called Center for Science uh, and Environment, CSE. They bring out this excellent magazine called Down to Earth, headed by this lady called Sunita Narayan. Who we ordered. will
0: talk to. Sunita's a friend of mine, and I will make sure she comes on this podcast in the future.
1: Yeah, you must. And she, she's brilliant. She's actually doing fantastic stuff because I have been to, you know, she, she uh, I mean, she, uh, she I, I remember going to an event where she was talking exactly about this traditional diet and making it actually seem cool. You know, that's also very important because, remember, um, India, unlike, say, um, the more aging European countries or most Western countries, I mean, our median age is, I think, 27 or something or 28, right? So the vast majority of Indians are actually young and they are aspirational. So, I mean, Anything which you want to sell, whether it's a product or a service or an idea, if you will, has to appeal to the young. And I think, I think you know, it's extremely important to make it seem, I mean, I have a teenage daughter at 20, and it's, it's, it's very important to be cool, to be marketer's cool. Now, there, I think these big um, big um, you know, companies who are the food companies, I think they because they've got deep pockets and they've, you know, they sort of... And, and, we also have many, many television stations now, you know, everybody, even the poorest of the poor has, you know, cable television. So there's been this sort of aggressive food marketing, right? Yeah. And we saw this with the offerings, and now it's with the packaged food, and it's also, you know, then you have the the other narrative of, uh, you know, rapid urbanization. But I think in parts, I, I wouldn't say this is still a mainstream story, is it? But I, for instance, in my circle that I move in, I, I've noticed a lot of people have stopped drinking, you know, like, say, Coke and Pepsi. And they're going in more for, you know, like, right now, as we speak, I was just having a mango shake. <laughs> you know, and we yeah, had um and, um, you know, and, and the things, buttermilk and stuff like that. And I think... Um, and there is this whole fitness fad. And somehow, I think if this could be kind of, you know, uh, uh, there's also this uh, big craze for organic food. Right now, where it is, is that these things are happening, but it is still seen as a kind of a talking point among what I would call the um, social elite. You know, yeah. it's a kind of a niche, niche thing, right? Um, most people, if you're at the bottom, at bottom you know, they, they, they just they just buy something, you know, whatever you can see, junk food, like if you go to slums, for instance, you know, you find every product, uh, and then this is these big multinational companies have been extremely clever, they've sort of made bonsai versions of everything, not just multinational companies in the sense of Western companies, but even Indian companies, you know. I don't think you know they, they are necessarily more moral. You know the big companies I and mean, everybody's to profit, right? Yeah. So you, you find these little bonsai. You know, small sachets of you know, let's say this kind of you know salty stuff. Yeah. Um, and also, and this is happening at a time where the vast majority there's is a certain nutrition illiteracy. You know, people don't really know. So I I think there is a big scope for uh you know I mean Sunita is one of the few people. Vandana Shiva, there's another person. She's also you know into this this you know organic food. She talks about. Uh, she she runs a little cafe. You know where you can have um, you know organic uh, food and you know cooked. Uh, you know, in Facebook, people are, um, uh, you know, constantly posting recipes, grandmother's recipes. And in India, we still have the, fortunately, we still retain the tradition of cooking. You know, the vast majority wouldn't just, you know, have pre cooked stuff. You know, they would cook from first principles. So I think, I think there is a lot of scope, but I think it's important to get it down from, You know, it's still as a kind of a niche issue, and I think we need to get it down to a more mass, uh, uh, to to get get these messages down to a more mass thing. I mean, there's been a lot of talk. I think the World Health Organization has been doing a lot of work, you know, talking about uh, junk food, and especially in schools. Many schools, you know, top uh, private schools, they they banned, uh, you know, junk food in their canteen then you can't
0: also do everything by just banning. You know, that's not exactly, exactly. Can I just, just one other question, which touches on both uh, the, the good side and the bad side is status of women and empowerment. I mean, when I come to India and meet, I'm astonished at how bright and active and educated that so many young women are now that, you know, I get a real good vibe about the future dynamism uh, thinking uh just just a really highly educated group of people but uh, at a national level there remain big issues around status of women and of course you know we hear about all the 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 frightening criminal stories of women's abuse and rape although that is not unique to India I mean every country has that problem sure. and I'm not sure it's more common in India or not but just a few final comments. How do you see the status of women in your country right now and the big challenges?
1: I think it's absolutely central. Um, I mean, I am completely aware. Of my status as an extremely privileged woman, you know, um, not just in the from the economic sense. Yes, I'm way above the breadline, but also in the kind of upbringing I've had. You know, we were two sisters, and my parents never made us feel that we were in any way, um, you know, different. There was no discrimination. My sister actually she lives in she's a Canadian. She lives in Canada. I'm here. I became a journalist. There was no pressure to you know do this or do that. There's a lot of freedom. But I'm also aware that I'm part of a way for thin minor- minority. And it's very, very possible that a lot of the women you meet, um, yeah. or most foreigners are likely to meet when they come. These are the more articulate, sort of English-speaking, Anglicized people, probably right. relatively successful. So they're not really representative. And also, I think, you know, when we do this traditional uh, non-traditional thing it's not just about um kind of you know career woman but i think generally the status of women is low all over the world so i mean i think india is no exception but in, in india we have additional issues like i think one of the the, the really bad ones this female f- feticide you know this obsession with the male yeah. child uh, um you know you kind of don't allow and, and what is to me, you know, um, because I write on health and uh, development issues, I mean, that, that's my major areas. I also see the status of women as a central, pivotal issue in the entire development debate, including health. You know, I mean, you take something like maternal mortality, you know, it's it, it's because we still have, though it's criminalized, you know, it's, it's, it's against the law. We still have a lot of... I mean, one of the big reasons is we have underage marriages, you know, and then the, these the women are always you know undernourished, even even in houses where which are not necessarily very poor, you know, the women's eating the last, right. she's eating all the leftovers. Uh the woman's overall ability to negotiate anything, you know, is minimal. She cannot I mean, you know, we talk about negotiating, you know, safe sex. They've always said, you know, you can't negotiate anything in your life, how are you going to negotiate negotiate safe sex. So very often you have, you know, child after child. So all this kicks in, you know, and sometimes because of your position in the family and this, you can't even take an independent decision to rush to the doctor. And very often, you know, your health, everything, and this, and ultimately, the, the, the statistics of maternal mortality, that's the health indicator. You know, the, and then you have the violence against women and the, and the rape. But what is very interesting, what I find is, you know you would think i mean if you, that education alone would education would solve the problem but that's not necessarily true i mean we're, if you're talking about this just one indicator of the low status of women the female feticide i mean you know we have our child sex ratio very very skewed you know uh, there are more boys than girls right whereas in, naturally it's supposed to be the other way around except in specific parts of the you know the, the country um Education doesn't seem to necessarily change, and nor does even having money. In fact, what we have seen is this kind of practice being much more common in educated, affluent areas. And the reason is because this sort of patriarchy, or this sort of attitudes or mindsets, are being internalized. And when you give people, you know, when such people have education and and uh, money, they're just able to access technology you know, the, the state-of-the-art technology to get rid of their female fetuses, so it's a kind of complicates the picture a lot, but I'm not, you know, I still remain an optimist because in my lifetime, you know, I have seen a lot of changes, you know, I mean, my my grandmother was a child bride, you know, uh, she, she was married off at the age of 13, you know, she she, wow. she was very keen on education, but she couldn't finish, uh, And mean, she's the one who named me after a character, a literary character in a Sanskrit literature, she kind of read on her own. And uh, my mother studied nuclear physics, though she didn't actually work. Um, And then myself and, and, uh, you know, my sister, we've traveled the world and we've done a lot of things. So I see, you know, in families that I've seen, you know, the the change. So though the big picture sometimes and the statistics looks very, very bad, I I think women are coming up and a lot of the violence that you see is also actually a backlash. We in mean, the younger generation of women. You know, they are much more assertive and much more willing to. I mean, you know, we've had this right. sort of equivalent Me Too movement. You know, people are willing to speak out. Many more women are. You know, work. And though the work, the, the the female workforce participation rate in India is still ter- terrible. But I I think I think things are changing. But you know, it's a huge country. So sometimes the change and the change is firstly. Uh, not as visible and also it's very patchy you know some places right, are right. changing faster yeah. than others but I remain optimistic and I think um, we have a lot of good signs as well you know amid the gloomy overall picture.
0: Thank you so much Patra it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you thank you so much you've given a very uh, detailed and comprehensive view of India right now and I remain optimistic as well I always love coming when I touch down anywhere in India I feel very happy and I hope to be coming to Jharkhand later in the year uh, where uh, I've been coming for the last uh, 20 years or so Um, thank you so much uh, and we'll stay in touch Uh, thank you very much for listening if you know someone who might benefit from this podcast please do tell them help us to grow our community and do check out or sign up to my blog at www.anthonycostello.net If you sign up, you'll get an email every week which links to the blog or podcast. Have a great week. Bye.